0: I'll invite you once again to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Jonah as we look together this morning at Jonah chapter 2. As you're turning there, allow me to read for you Jonah chapter 2. Listen as I read God's Word, then we will pray and consider this section of Scripture together. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. And I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope in steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Lord, as we take this time... To give our full consideration to this passage, Lord, I would ask that in reflection upon it, you would help us to again be stirred with amazement at the power of our God, the absolute scope of his um, sovereign, powerful exhibition in this chapter, Lord, that we would also, uh, as we undertake it, uh, see Those demonstrations of of your kindness and of your mercy and of your love. And Lord, may we within it begin to recognize even more clearly um, the privileges that we have as your redeemed people. Lord, I pray that you would bless, uh, that I would speak your word very faithfully and clearly. Lord, those you, you have been pleased to gather here with us today, give them ears to hear. And may we be moved by your spirit and word to worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Once again, you'll find this morning on the back of your worship folder the outline that we will be covering today. Um, Really, the way that I want to look at this, though the chapter begins, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, I want to consider first of all what this, what really we might consider overall when we look at the scriptures, the word of God Is more than anything else it is the revelation of who God is in his person in his being in his power in his grace and in his salvation in his judgment and in his wrath but the the central being in Scripture is the same as the central being in all of creation and in all of history it is God first and foremost and so what what we tend to do and it's a a significant emphasis of modern Christianity is that um, with every passage one of the first things we look to is what does this say to me what does this say for me what is this about me and there's a place for that because the Word of God is delivered for the instruction, the edification, consolation, encouragement, training of His people. That is a significant use of it. But when we go straight to uh, what should I do, and, and we don't ask those questions, what does this reveal about God? We begin to kind of get Christianity upside down. And we think it's all about us as opposed to, Honoring Him, glorifying Him, seeking Him, seeking His face, serving Him. Sometimes I think those kinds of Old Testament phrases, seek the face of God, doesn't make any sense today. Because, well, what am I going to get from that? You know, and ascribe to the Lord glory, ascribe to Him the glory that is due to His name. But what do I get from that? It's not always about what we get. He's the one who deserves all glory and praise. And what I want us to do before we even consider the prayer that is in this section of Jonah crying out to God, it's helpful to just kind of get a clear perspective on who is this God that he's crying out to? And what is the confidence that he can have, the scope of his prayers even, because this is God. That he's crying out to. So the first thing that I want us to look at. And it's going to draw us back to the preceding chapter and into this one. is As we look at the power of God. Is we look at God's sovereignty and God's control. I want to to draw you back for a moment in chapter 1. Where the scripture is telling us. Actually we'll look at that in just a moment. Go down with me if you would. In, in this passage, and we're going to read verse 3, it says this For you cast me into the deep and into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, and all of your waves and your billows passed over me. All right, it's easy if we just reading quickly to miss some very important things in there. Who does it say cast Jonah into the sea? God! Now, if you read closely, chapter one, who actually cast him physically into the sea? The mariners, they grabbed those men, they grabbed a hold of him and threw him into the water. So then this this is always the challenge with men and as we struggle to understand that the majesty of the power of God and His sovereignty over all details in our personal providence. The things that happen, the things that we experience. Was Jonah wrong when he said, you cast me into the sea? Why, why did those men cast him into the sea? The lot that was cast That pointed to Jonah as the problem Who controls that lot? As we know, Proverbs sixteen thirty three. God controls that lot So God pointed it out God is the one who is, who brought Whose waves were they? Your waves Whose billows? your billows so all of the wind and all of the waves are not attributed and, and I hope I don't offend anybody to mother nature yeah I don't expect anyone to be offended but we hear that kind of language even the people personify uh, when there is bad weather you know nature is angry the ecosystem and we the, all this kinds of uh, fun things for people to say but it really misses the reality which is every wind every wave at God's sovereign control absolutely listening to and obeying him uh, the scope is we began to look at that the When With regard to Jesus, when he had stilled the seas, the, the cry went out like this from the disciples, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? When Jesus cast out demons from individuals, the cry went out, who is this that even the evil spirits obey him? On and on, who is this that he speaks with authority but not as our scribes? And those are good questions. Who is this that says your sins are forgiven when only God can forgive sins? Who is this that makes the blind to see and the lame to walk? Who is this who raises the dead? And we have the privilege of being able to say, son of man, son of God. And here we see that the emphasis, his waves, his wind, and he cast. So even the acts of men, no, although men are responsible for all that they do, because God often Permits men for the purposes of the display of his judgment and power and wrath Permits them to carry out the evil desires of their heart But none can do what God does not permit And there's a a wonderful recognition Which even we look at in the book of Job And sometimes it strains our minds But just because it strains our minds we cannot cast it out We know that ultimately Satan is given permission by God to go to Job And perpetrate all of those atrocities Take all of his possessions uh, Bring to death all of his children And all of that And that is the activity of Satan that he could not accomplish when he desired Until God granted him limited scope to carry out his evil desires And Job's response to that was, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Our modern tendency, I think we get go too far and miss that point. God gives, and the devil takes away. God wants to bless us, and the devil wants us to experience nothing but ruin and misery and we, we develop this duality where the devil almost is the evil God and sometimes he gets away with what he wants to get away with and eventually God will fix it all eventually God will work it out and make it right that's not true Every single undertaking of the enemy serves the very purposes of God. God is sovereignly in control, even of the evil events. We remember the things that stirred the heart of Judas. It says Satan entered the heart of Judas. But what what Judas was doing, what the leaders of uh, of the Jews at that time were doing, What Pilate and Herod were doing was what? As we read Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. All that God's hand had purposed to take place. Wicked men handed Him over. Wicked men nailed Him to a cross. The scriptures indicate and even declare it. There's a sense in which His blood is on their hands. But this is what God had purposed From all eternity when the Lamb was slain. That book of the Lamb slain was written before the foundation of the world. As Isaiah 53 says, it pleased the Lord to crush him. So it was, so was it men or was it God? We're always asking those questions. Men are responsible for all that they do. But let us not miss out on the the undeniable constantly reiterated fact God is absolutely sovereign and someone says well what if uh, something bad happens to me and I can't figure out how God is going to work it for good that's only because right now we're stuck where we're at Sometimes the good is every evil that is done God will display the perfection and power of His wrath in final judgment against that Maybe that's the good that you will be able to enter in to glorifying God By standing there and say vengeance belongs to the Lord Remember scripture says vengeance is mine says the Lord We get to say those things, we're going to get to see in this chapter again, that wonderful refrain of the scriptures, salvation belongs to our God. But we oft forget another refrain, vengeance belongs to our God. And in the expression of both of those, glory belongs to our God. We must see and understand all of that. And Jonah, in what is going on, recognizes the totality of God's hand involved in it. He's not going to make excuses. He's not going to blame these men and their fear. He's not going to, he recognizes at the end of the day. And this can help us through the hardest of occasions and the most trying of seasons to fall to our knees and say, my God is in control. He works all things after the counsel of His will, Ephesians 1.11. To know that He works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, Romans 8.28. When we know those things, and it's time that we know them with faith and a firm confidence. One that, that has the experiential power of calming the soul. Pulling us back from the ed- edge of anxiety. How often the scriptures say, do not be anxious. For those who are in the McShane readings and you're reading through uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7 this week. Have again begun to see that, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. And you and I in most of our experience, what kind of begins to creep up on us from within. From within. Oh, this is going on, this is going on, this has happened, that's happened. How I, this is beyond my control. I don't know if I'm going to have enough time. And, and before we know it, where are we at? Yeah, we're in the land of anxiety. <laughs> you know, and, and the way out of the land of anxiety actually isn't to run <laughs> to try to get out of it. It's just to look up and realize, hey, wait a second these things will not be my utter ruin they can't because I am his and it goes on to not only see it in the wind and the waves but we see it in the great fish in verse 17 it says this of chapter 1 the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah now some of the older translations there say the Lord prepared Which doesn't rightly convey the idea. God took one, uh, the fish were already made, God assigned one of them. The right size, the right shape, to be in the right place at the right time. To make that catch, as Jonah was thrown over the side. I mean, if, if if you begin to weigh in there all of the variables, that's interesting, isn't it? Just the the purposes of God so perfectly working that out. Now, I will tell you this, there has been far too much effort from scholars to figure out exactly what kind of fish this was. A traditional way of saying it was whales, and then people... This is not a reference to whales, technically. The literal phrase is great fish. In we're in heap, this is going to mess you up for a moment, but c- come past it with me. The Hebrew word for fish is dog. So think about that for a moment. Uh, not catfish, but dog. And so here, here, you, here you've got this fish. Now some say, it, that can be a reference not only to fish, but to almost any seafaring creature. It has a breadth of expression. Some say, no, this was a sea monster. And, and, and get on and on about and then there is scientific investigation as to what type of fish is sizable enough to swallow said man and to house him conveniently and to be able to give to him sufficient air and oxygen so who what kind of fish has enough air in his belly to be able to do and and they begin doing all of those things but be careful, because I might ask this. What kind of water is necessary for Jesus to walk on it? It, it doesn't have to be a fish that ordinarily you could breathe inside of. When we're dealing with the miraculous, be careful. Sit, be astounded. Be amazed. Recognize such things don't happen. Uh, The the point isn't, and and I guess this is part of the problem Men are, they're trying to fight so hard to figure out How he could have survived for three days Instead of the simplicity of recognizing How astounding that God preserved him Alive for three days Gotta find a natural explanation for it Because, come on The supernatural, and again I think as yet no one's been able to run the test find the right fish stuff something into its belly catch it again three days later and see if it's still living in the gut Uh, you know because that's that's a mess to figure out and I don't think that's the focus of this oh who thinks when they're reading this passage you know we've got to figure out more about this fish I mean, until we understand what kind of fish this was, we'll never understand what we're supposed to learn from this passage. Does that make sense? No, the fish is a servant of God, so there are some who who say it's a shark, a special kind of shark with six rows of teeth that could retract and send his teeth at will. I was like, wow, that's interesting. but as many stories as you can come up with All we know is that it was a sea creature And it swallowed him and the, and the emphasis isn't on the fish The emphasis is really on God himself Who appointed the fish? The Lord appointed the fish Jonah when in the belly of the fish cried out to the Lord Chapter 2 verse 1 And then verse 10 The Lord spoke to the fish There's not a single verse that mentions the fish that doesn't also mention the Lord. You know, and I'm just going to throw this out there to you. In general process, what do you think is ultimately going to be more important in various conversations and sentences? The Lord or fish? I know that's an easy one again i think that the focus can be confused when uh, the disciples are there and they throw out their nets as jesus says throw it out on the other side and there's so many fish in there they can't pull the nets back is the thing that's supposed to captivate us the fish oh there were this many fish we estimate if the if the if the boat was sinking it would have to be this many pounds of fish and and uh, no 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 they were not, a, it wasn't the fish that was the transformative thing. When that happened, what was the response of Peter? Do you know? Oh my, I am unclean. Go away from me, Lord. He was not in that moment, absolutely his mind is caught up in the fish his mind was amazed at the Lord when Jesus resurrected from the dead and came again to the seaside and again told them to throw out the nets and they pulled back in the fish they recognized that it was the Lord and what immediately did Peter do he jumped in the water and he swam to shore because the most important thing was not the fish we remember in the calling of of, uh, Peter and Andrew they had just come in hauling in their load and Jesus said to them, follow me. And immediately they followed him, leaving their boat, leaving their fish, leaving their nets. With James and John, it also was leaving their father. You know, sometimes as much as there is value in considering careful the details of Scripture, sometimes I think it, we get So caught up in the in some of the details That we fail to recognize all of those details are things that are designed To point us to the excellency the glory the power the majesty of God And often the reaction of those in scripture to those events Was to turn to God, was to respond to God, and yet here we are focusing on the fish or on the miracle, and God gets side emphasis. Not only do we see the great fish there, but in in chapter 2, verse 6, it says this, As he went down to the land whose bars close over me forever, he's saying, as I'm going down to die, from which there's no coming back, Yet you brought up my life from the pit So your wind, your waves God is the one who sent the fish so we could effectively say your fish And you brought me up What a a powerful manifestation of God's sovereign control Secondly, we not only want you to see God's sovereign control But I want us to see the pity Or compassion and mercy of God manifest in this passage Now, it does say this, in, uh, if you look with me, in verse 8, it says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, or, older translations, forsake their mercy, or, you forsake your mercy. Now, the, the challenge there is because it is a rich word in the Hebrew, it's that word chesed, which... If you go from one translation to another in the English language, so many of them render this word differently. And some translations will render it different in one place and different in another place because it's such a complex word. The ESV here speaks of it as the steadfast love. This word is also commonly in the New American Standard translated loving kindness. Most predominantly, the King James translates it, mercy. And and when you look at steadfast love, loving kindness, and mercy, those are significantly differently nuanced words. And you really need to kind of pile all those together to get a sense of chesed. It it, it carried often with it in certain Old Covenant contexts, those that God had bound Himself to, In covenant love and loyalty I mean and that included his his mercy his patience his long-suffering his compassion towards them it's just such a rich and big word so it's nice to uh, for those who study it to see all of the ways that these men render it and then really study that word and recognize The reason why the translators of various translations can't agree is because that word, it's too much for a single phrase in English to really carry the scope of it. Because remember, in this circumstance, why is Jonah in the belly? What brought him to this point? God said what? Arise and go to Nineveh. We had looked last week. God gave wonderfully clear and concise instruction. There's no doubt exactly what God wants from him. And what did he do? He thought, not only is he not going to do it, but there are ways of, there's ways of not doing things. One way of not doing things is just to lay down where you're at, and I'm not going. Another way He's not only not obeying, but he is overtly rebelling. Which disobedience, in a sense, already has rebellion linked into it. But he is actually getting in a ship to what? Go the other way. Again, if you're looking geographically, to go to the coastline and get in a ship is the opposite direction to heading to Nineveh, which is across the land. So he's... he's Not only not going where he's supposed to go He's going in the opposite direction of what God calls him to do Would it be Would God have every right To punish him? What are the wages of sin? Anyone know Romans 6 23 The wages of sin is death I ask you Is this man sinning? Does he know that he's sinning? This isn't one. I didn't realize that God wasn't pleased with that. I didn't realize that was a sin. No. God told him exactly what to do. And in his heart and mind he said, there's no way I'm doing that. There's no way I'm going there. And we saw last week all of the forethought and plans. He went down. He booked a ticket. He got on there. And then he went down in the hole to go to sleep. He's absolutely in rebellion. So, would it make sense if God was to not have mercy on him? Not have pity? If the story ended, he threw Jonah, was thrown into the sea, and he drowned. The end. Would God have been at fault? Could anyone make any accusation of God? Or would we stand back and say, how foolish of Jonah? To disobey God and think he could escape his presence. Somehow go to a place where God's power would not be manifest. He got what he deserved. But the concept of mercy means a person deserves something. Death. And yet that is withheld from them. The concept of grace is they get something They don't deserve, so it's kind of from two angles. Mercy is you deserve crushing, and yet that is withheld from you. You don't receive what you deserve. But then you're stuck here still not deserving good. So you're not receiving the bad you deserve, but you don't deserve. Grace gives you what you don't deserve, while mercy withholds from you the judgment you do deserve. Those are two sides of a glorious coin, aren't they? (laughs) Because they put us in that position where, what do I deserve? Wrath and death. But God had mercy. And brought him up from the pit. It's astounding because he's cast in. He has no claim on forgiveness. He has no excuse, does he? No. There's no way that he can can play this. He is where he deserves to be. So when you look at his prayer, he's not saying, uh, I I didn't really mean it. You know, I I was eventually probably going to get there and uh, uh, go in in my own time. I just didn't feel now was the time. Uh, Whatever. The excuses men's hearts stir up never end, as we know. but he had no excuses. He knew. God sent him there. God's in control of it. It's where he deserves to be. He's going down. But look at. Uh, I love the mercy that, that showed here. Really I could see it also. Look in verse 2. I called to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol. That is I was. As good as dead and done there was no coming back I was where I deserved to be and I was absolutely hopeless to deliver myself I was as good as dead and then what did God do and you heard My voice I mean we've got to understand that and I don't want us to ever miss that as the children of God I think sometimes we lose sight of the glorious privilege that we have in Christ That in our distress we can cry out to him and he hears us We we have done everything in our lives That he would be right as he says sometimes to the children of Israel as they have lived out their wickedness. The scriptures refer to times where he says, when you cry out to me, I will not hear you. As you have turned your back on me, I have turned away and will not listen to you when you cry. Somehow we, I think, live in the the pleasant presumption that God owes us a hearing. I mean, he's God, he has to listen to prayers. That's his job description. No, it's not his job description. We don't describe to him what is his job, and that he would be pleased to hear and consider our prayers. Not only that, in the condition and in the circumstance that he's in, why is he there? Can he blame God for it? No. If God was to leave him there and not listen to him, would God be right and just? Yes. But though Jonah clearly deserved what he was getting, God listened. God attended. God heard. God lifted him out of the pit. That's so merciful. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, it's something that we need to understand in our lives too. Because there is something laced in this of the picture of the condition of man. Was, was there any way that he could claw himself to the surface? Was there any way that he could deliver himself from that fish? Now, just so you know, how long was he in the fish? Three days. Now... Generally speaking, now part of this is speculation, which uh, take it for what it is. It's not authoritative. But were I to find myself in the belly of a fish, the first thing I would try to do is find the exit. I'd want to get out of that thing because I'm thinking he's going to go down to the depths and then maybe I'll drown. And that might even be secondary because the first thought I'm probably thinking is, I'm going to die from the smell. It's unbearable. I mean, he is in just a horrible place. And it seems that even in in the sense of it, it doesn't, when he's describing it, he goes down and, and bars are closing over him, roots of the mountain. It seems like there's a bunch of other muck and mess that may be in there entangling with him. So after uh, the first few hours, what, do you, what would you be doing? Trying to get out. After the 48 hours, what are you thinking? Yeah, I, I, I can't get out of this. There is no way out. I'm hopeless. I'm dead. There is only one deliverance for me. And that is God. My sin has brought me into a condition of hopelessness and sure death. There is no way I can deliver myself. I might ask you this. Could he write a quick note and send it up to the ship? Any help, hope for help from the mariners? No. And that is... To some extent, we can see parallels in our own salvation, can't we? Where are we in our sin? Absolutely condemned. Dead. Is there any hope from anyone around us to deliver us? No. Is there any hope in ourselves to deliver ourselves? No. The only way that anyone is delivered from their sin is the same and only way that Jonah was delivered from this fish and sure death. And that is by the power of God. In salvation now again he's going to say that at the end of verse uh, 9 salvation belongs to our God and in this particular context he's not referencing the same glorious salvation that we receive but he's referencing his more immediate experience of deliverance from the belly of a fish and I tell you as amazing seemingly impossible And miraculous as this salvation is for Jonah, that's not even close. Because as we see from the scriptures, he was almost dead, sure to die. But for the natural man, what is our condition in this world? From Ephesians chapter 2. What is it? We were dead. In our trespasses and sin so that's, not, that's not somebody who's down there About to die That's someone who's already died And so we get, we get this combination Of this picture of Jonah and, and his misery and helplessness As well as the picture of Lazarus On the other side And you put these two things together What is the hope of coming, back, coming out of the grave For Lazarus? Only when he's given life What is the hope for deliverance for Jonah? Only when God delivers him the picture ends up putting forward that salvation is all of God By his power and by his purposes and in the context of it even Was it deserved by the one who was delivered? Was it warranted and earned in any way? No It's given by mercy and grace Such a beautiful picture. And we also saw in there also uh, the delivery or salvation in in the last chapter of the men. In verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, which is an act of worship, and vows to to Him, which is a a statement of commitment. You see the same kind of thing stated in verse 9 for Jonah. But with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you, and what I have vowed, I will pay. References to the recognition of God's power and God's powerful deliverance or salvation was, uh, was attended with praise, thanksgiving, and vows, words of commitment. Now let's just quickly look at a few thoughts from, uh, from the prayer as these things uh, flow together much more quickly. The, we know the situation uh, that is going on in, to which he prays. He is in the belly. It's important to note this, though. The book of Jonah and the account of these things, it's not a journal while the events are happening. God said, arise and go, but right now I'm headed down to the seashore. Uh, right now I'm writing from the belly of a fish. Right, no, no, no. The book of Jonah seems to be, from our best understanding, written after the totality of these experiences, sharing them, looking back on them. So it's important for us to to, to, to know the situation. But in, in that... Uh, Circumstance says he's in that fish that God appointed. We know nothing of the depth, but there is description of depths. But those things reference really what we might call the condition. Verse two tells us that he cries to him out of his distress. Verse three and four says, "You cast me into the deep." Again, that 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 gives you the sense it's unlikely that the fish is kind of floating on the surface when it throws. Says the phrase deep, it's not just that the water is deep, but I am into the deep. So it seems like we've got a submerged fish at this point into the heart of the seas, not just on the surface, but into the very core of it, the phrasing there, the flood. And the flood surrounded me. So again, it's important for us to note this. It's not that somehow he was in a secluded Comfortable air bubble He wasn't in first class fish he, he was in very uncomfortable circumstances Wet all around Probably at times uh, Water coming in and, wave, and, and, and brushing over him And him having to spit it out of his mouth And clear it out of his eyes It, it was a, a dire circumstance that he's in And he goes on to describe it further as as seeing that sense of distance. Verse 4, then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Well, again, that's an expression of his sense of distance. But I ask you this, could God see him? Yeah. And as deep as he would get when he would cry out to God in the depths, what would happen? god would hear him look at verse 7 it says uh when my life was fainting away i remembered the lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple no matter how far you see one seems to be no matter how much sin has taken them captive and carried them into rebellion No matter how much it seems to have dominated and controlled their life. And no no matter how rightly they may be under the judgment of it. Is the sinner too far for the saving mercy and grace of God? That the sinner no matter what he's done. No matter where he finds himself. Can cry out to God. And you know what he need not fear? I'm too far. He won't hear me. Here is Jonah. You know, and, and again, you picture that as you probably would. Some of you have probably been in water at some point in your life. And maybe gone under the water and tried to talk to a friend or a sibling underwater. And it's a little bit humorous. You can hear sounds, but can you really make out what's going on? You can't make out any of the words and so it, it, it seems dire and impossible that, that there would be a capability of communicating so you work it out but with God God hears God sees God knows. What a wonderful mercy in all of this distance and we see the expression of his utter desperation even as he says the bars in verse 6 were closing upon me forever. Verse 7 my life was fainting away. He saw no hope. He saw no recourse except one. And he seemed to see that one by the grace of God very clearly. Because look what it says. In his cry, I love what it says at the beginning of verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. Now, when I see that phrasing, it's interesting. Because I'm, I'm working on my best understanding and trying to identify. As he's cast into the fish, he's probably thinking he's being judged to death. And he scatters and tries to get out it is likely that and it seems that when his life is fainting away he's exhausted all of his own efforts of escape he's exhausted all of his own strength he's hungry he's thirsty he's desperate he's given up I remembered the Lord now that always breaks my heart a little bit because But I recognize that's the, that's the tendency. Even David speaks of times that he did that. Going into heaviness of heart, going into despair, and then crying upon the Lord. But I ask you this. Should he be waiting to likely the second and third day when he's about to die to remember the Lord? Or when he's cast in there, should he be thinking of the Lord already? God, you have brought me here. You alone can preserve me here. You alone can deliver me from here, you alone can give me the strength, uh, how often is it that men's tendency is, when all else fails, cry out to God, um, you know, and what's, what's amazing is, that when men even use that methodology, that, that God would listen. <laughs> And wouldn't say, you didn't cry out to me first, you tried to get help from him, you tried to deliver yourself, and now that there's nothing else works, now you want my help? God is so much more merciful than we might be in, in that kind of circumstance. But I, I just want us to, to, to bear in mind this, and, and we, I hear this, and it creeps into our Christian language, and God help us to fix it, you know? Regarding certain things. Somebody is terribly ill. Or. or um, The phrasing sometimes goes like this. There's nothing. I can do. So I'll just pray. As if. What? Since there's nothing I can actually do. I'll just pray. As if that's a afterthought, a secondary, a lesser participation, a lesser involvement, a lesser help. You know, like like if a missionary is going somewhere overseas and someone says, look, hand to mouth every day, we don't have anything that we can give you, but financially, but we'll pray for you. Do you imagine the response of the missionary is going to be, well, if you're not going to give me anything, don't bother praying for me. No, I'll tell you, my experience is, is, uh, yeah, if somebody's going to be given money but not praying for me, keep your money. I want people who are praying for me because it is. It, we are involved in spiritual service, spiritual battles, spiritual ministry. And, and if you think that money's going to get it done, it's not. We want, it, it has to be a real participation that is we will pray for you. And as God enables us, we will also give. But it, there's just this tendency to think that Prayer is secondary, last resort side. And, and, and God should be first, isn't it? When I was dying. No, no, no. When I was living. When I was running. When I was going to war. When I was returning victorious from war. When, at every point, what point should we not call to mind the Lord? So I see this. you know it's nice that eventually he got there, but I think there's something that we can learn from this as well. Let us not, in that sense, wait until the final moments. Further, not only did in this cry did he remember him, but there's a sense in which we can see uh, that he repented, even as it says he's cast into the deep and God's uh, Bringing these judgments on him. Uh, Then I said I am driven away from your sight. There is a recognition and acknowledgement of his own wrongdoing. That that what is coming upon him is coming upon him from God. And this driving away is, is in a sense what he deserves. When someone comes to true salvation. Do they come to it because they think they deserved it? If someone thinks that that they rightly deserve the salvation that God gives in Christ, I ask you this. Do they know the salvation that God gives in Christ? Because in the understanding that the Spirit brings in the proclamation of the gospel, you know one of the things that it works within us? A clear recognition that we are unworthy Undeserving and can contribute nothing of our own good or, or gain to our salvation. We are dependent wholly on his mercy and grace for deliverance. And we see there's a recognition of his condition and we see that he received. He cried out and God heard and God delivered him. And I see also with me his confidence. Though in verse 4 it says, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Now, linguistically, there's some things in there that cause some translators to say, nah, he's not expressing hope at that point because there's so much other despair going on. You know, that, that you've heard me, he, he clearly knows after the fact. But I, I want to see that in this passage, I don't think it's laced exclusively with despair. Laced in with his despair seems to be this clear sense on the power and purposes of God. Because, look what it says, when the bars were closing down on me, you lifted my life from the pit. Verse 8 says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love here he's looking at this really it's a simple notion everyone who will look to something else now some translations there don't don't say vain idols they say worthlessness okay Uh, but the phrasing here it's like all remember all of those prayers that were being made up on the ship and how effective they were should he now uh, since Time is going by and immediately God not delivered him. Should he move on to cry out to something and someone else? No. He recognizes it. God is the only one who can deliver. There is not mercy. There is not steadfast love. There is not hope to come from any other quarter. From any other place. It's from him or it's not coming. He delivers or I don't get it. There's, everyone who will turn their hopes to anything else they think is powerful and can do it, is going to find out. They went to that which does not and cannot work. Because God alone delivers. And so we see his confidence as he, that he will look on the Lord. That God is the one who lifted him up. That God has set his love upon him in an expression of loyalty, mercy, and grace. So that he cries out, salvation belongs to our Lord. Again, we see in the book of Revelations, that's the cry of the saints. And oh, that we get this. There is not a part that Jonah contributed Jonah did not somehow tickle the right place that was going to cause an occasional sneeze in the fish that would send him out. Is that what happened? No. How does it end? Verse 10 says this. The Lord spoke to the fish. And what? It vomited Jonah out on dry land. Even that, if you think about it. The location that the fish was to collect him the location that the fish was to eject him do you think practically speaking if he had sent him back out in the midst of the seas that this guy would be doing much swimming three days without food having already worn himself out in despair Ready to die. So again, his only deliverance is what? He needed to be fully delivered. And brought from the despair. To have his feet on solid ground. God had to totally deliver him. Not partially deliver him. Or he was still done. And God did that. Now a lot of people say, well I don't understand how that happened. I mean, how... how did he send him 10 meters? Uh, how far did... It... I don't know. For all I know, the, the fish himself went all the way up on the shore and, and he was done. That's it. He lay there and, and he never went back out or waited for high tide. I don't know the details. All I know is this man needed Full and complete deliverance that set him on solid ground. That was all the working and strength of another. And not another man. But only what God himself can do. And he did. He delivered him straight to that land. And we we see that conviction. There is no hope anywhere else. And we see then the result of that what is always the result of salvation is a response of thanksgiving. An expression of worship of which sacrifices of thanksgiving are and i will pay the vows that i've committed so that it always is it thanksgiving and praise worship and service and commitment always result from the delivering grace of god the grace of god saves a man begins, puts that man into service as one who is now sanctified by the Spirit and being sanctified by the Spirit and he will remain in service. And next week we get to see that before this deliverance, he was told, arise and go. But Jonah went the other way. Next week we see, arise and go. And what does Jonah do this time? This time Jonah goes the right way. But just because one has been delivered, just because one has been touched and received and seen the mercy of God, does that mean he never sins? Does that mean he never misses the mark? No. So let's pray.